John 1, 6 through 8. The shadows are playing with my eyes. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Let's pray. Father, indeed, as we uh, read earlier, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Thank you for this enduring and reliable word. As we examine this portion of it this morning, let us not forget that by it you also examine us as well. Grant the Spirit to illuminate the word that we might understand it, believe it, and live in accordance with your will and purposes found here. We ask this in the name of the living word who became flesh, Jesus, the Messiah. Amen. As many of you know, I am strange. And one of the strangenesses of my own personality, I guess, is that whenever I watch things, uh, movies, TV, I'm sort of always looking for the theology that's going on. And There's some things that have no theology whatsoever, or it's very implicit. And there's some that it is explicit, and I always find it intriguing. In fact, that's one of the intriguing things for me for Battlestar Galactica. You know, the differences between the human religion and the Cylon religion. And for those of you who've never seen it, don't worry, okay? (laughs) I'm not going to talk much about that. That's just, this is what I do. It's kind of how I'm wired, how God made me, and it's... Probably strange to most of you. The other night, my wife and I were watching Sleepy Hollow, and I probably watch it mostly because it's produced by some of the same people who did Fringe. I liked Fringe. That's science, and then they kept putting a lot of theology in towards the end. So we watched Sleepy Hollow. I'm not sure how much longer we'll watch Sleepy Hollow, however. But there was this one exchange. Uh, Essentially, the, the main plot of Sleepy Hollow is this. The end of time is coming. These are the last days, and Ichabod Crane has been resurrected, so to speak, from the dead, and he is one of the two witnesses along with a police officer in good old Sleepy Hollow. So there, you're caught up. Uh, (laughs) The only other police officer who knows what's going on, everyone else can't really understand all of the supernatural happenings that are going on in Sleepy Hollow, is the, the police chief or police captain. And he's really struggling with this a little bit. He wants to know what happens, what is the future of the two witnesses, because he cares about these two people. And so he goes and sees a priest, and the following dialogue takes place. The captain asks, So, is this symbolism? Allegory? Literal? The kindly-looking priest replies, You can ask those questions about the whole Bible. Some people believe they are absolute truths. Others see them as parable. Now, by the way, what a very unhelpful guide this man is. (laughs) Okay. The captain asks, What happens to the witnesses? According to the New Testament, Witness means martyr. Their destiny is to die for their testimonies. It was at that point that, of course, all the rest of the red flags in my head went flying high. Um, (laughs) As there was some 
error that we shall see as we press on with this passage. Because this passage is largely about what it means to be a martyr or to bear witness. As John introduces this subject that will occupy him through much of this gospel. The big idea this morning is to, for us to testify to the light that others may trust in him. Let's start sort of with the basic idea that God sends witnesses to the light. John has shifted his focus away from the eternal word. And now, you know, here it's, he's still in the prologue. He's still setting up everything that's going to flow out through the rest of the gospel. But he shifts his attention away from Jesus into John. And initially, this seems sort of odd. But as we stop, stop and think about it, it actually does begin to make some sense. He introduces us to John the Baptizer. That's how I call him. I know most people call him John the Baptist. He wasn't a Baptist, but he was the Baptizer, okay? That's why I prefer the Baptizer. I don't want them claiming him, okay? But he's trying to carefully distinguish John the Baptizer from Jesus because some people were confused in that day. So he starts with this, this distinguishing him by saying, there was a man. And the verb that he uses there, and I hate to do the grammar stuff to you, but it's important in, this, in certain instances. And in this case, it is pretty in, important. Remember, we have in the beginning, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and it uses that one verb all three times. The verb that is used here to describe that there was a man is not the was that we see in verse 1. The verb that is used is identical to the one about creation. All things were created or came into being. And so what John is saying could be translated here, it came to pass or it happened that there was this guy who was sent from God. Both Mark 1 and uh, Luke 1 testify to a very uh, miraculous and special birth, indicating that John was to play a significant role in what was to come. John, however, downplays that. He doesn't include the birth narrative of John the Baptist, or sorry, baptizer. He kind of leaves that out and just introduces him as if he appears almost out of the ether, okay? because some people were making too much of John. He downplays him a bit here. He says, however, that John was sent by God. He wants to be very clear that John did not come on his own accord, but that he was a man on a mission, and that that mission came from God himself. The verb that is used again here is the one in the noun form we get apostle. Officially sent by someone on a mission. I love the Blues Brothers movie. And one of the things I love about the Blues Brothers movie is that there's this worship scene in a church. They've gotten this commission, they think, from the nun who raised them, actually who terrorized them their entire childhood. And <laughs> it dawns on them that they are now on a mission from God. And that's actually one of the themes. There's three or four times throughout the, about the movie when they go, we're on a mission from God. That's John the Baptizer. Mission from God. He who was sent. And that is the drumbeat of this entire gospel. Sent, sent, sent. Fifty-four times in this book alone, sent is used. 
Usually it's used about Jesus. But in this particular instance, it's used about John the baptizer. John has a message for us. It is to recognize that the Father sent the Son. He was on a mission from His Father. John, as we see this idea of Him being sent, He is the last in a long line of prophets that were sent to prepare God's people for the Messiah who was going to come. His appearance there in the wilderness baptizing people was not incidental. It was on purpose. It was the design of God as the last great one to say, Behold, one is coming who is greater than me, whose sandals I'm not even good enough to remove, which was the lowest sort of slave possible to remove the sandals. So great. John continues about this John the baptizer. He says that he came as a witness in order to bear witness. So they often kind of leave out that uh, phrase there, the in order to. He came to testify to the truth. And that's one of the differences between John's gospel and the other gospels. Because in the other gospels, they make much of the fact that he was baptizing people. And it was in the fact that he did baptize people was significant because that was initially how Jesus the Messiah was going to be revealed and made known to John through that process of baptism. But here in John's Gospel, there's almost no mention of the fact that he baptized anybody. It was all about his function as a witness to bear testimony about the living word. That's John's focus. The importance of John is that he's a witness, that he testifies. And yes, the Greek word for witness is martyr. It is. But the idea that it means you die is something that we've stuck on it because so many of those who bore witness died for their faith. And in fact, John the baptizer is going to die for his faith. But that's not what the word initially meant. It had that idea of bearing witness, of testifying to truth, of committing yourself to a version of the story, so to speak. Over time, I've given plenty of references for people. Sometimes they're written, sometimes it's a phone reference. And and I tremble sometimes when I do this, because I've learned the hard way, I guess. I had to do it this week, and I was trying to, you know, it was a phone one, so they're worse. Didn't know it was coming. And I'm like, what can I say about this person? (laughs) Me knowing their weaknesses and things. What can I say about this person? What should I? Because I should feel a sense of obligation that they know about things that may hinder that person's capacity to fulfill the job responsibilities. Understand? I'm bearing witness in some respect to the truth about who that person is. Otherwise, my word is no good. John was bearing witness to the character of who Jesus was. His word must be good. It must be reliable. It must be in line with the truth. What's kind of interesting here is uh, Jesus is going to talk a lot about this when we get to chapter 5. One of the things he says there in verse 34 is, not that the testimony I receive is from man, 
Now, wait a minute. Wasn't John sent to testify about Jesus? Not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. Jesus did not necessarily need testimony to know who he was, to know what he was about. He's not relying upon what men say about him in terms of his own view of himself, his own self-identity and, and all of that. The testimony was not for Jesus, it was for others. Just as we see as Jesus, that they might believe. As we're going to hit on in a little bit. People still need witnesses to the light. God continues to send them. John, the author of this gospel, was himself one of those witnesses to the light. He starts off his first letter this way. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life. And John continues. John understood himself in his apostolic ministry to be a witness bearing testimony to the truth about Jesus Christ. It shaped all that he did from that point forward. We see that Jesus instituted this, John chapter 20, after the resurrection. Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Luke says this same thing in Acts chapter 1. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so we see that the giving of the Holy Spirit in part was to empower and enable the apostles and other disciples, not just them, not just the twelve, to empower them to bear witness to the ministry and the the work of Jesus Christ for the salvation of sinners. And so there's a a chain that kind of goes on. Even though John was the last of the prophets that talked about the coming Messiah, so begins a chain of witnesses that look back and say, Messiah has come and testify about who he is and what he has done. Let me play on John 3.16 just a smidge. The Father so loved the Son that He gave the Spirit so that His people would love the Son and talk about the Son. The Father sends the Holy Spirit to dwell within His people precisely so that we might bear testimony to the uniqueness of Jesus and the saving power of Jesus, the greatness, glory, and honor of Jesus, Christ, sufficient and supreme. Think of it this way. You speak much about the ones you love. Imagine if you knew me for an extended period of time, but I never talked about my wife. What would you think about me if I never talked about Amy? 
you probably think I didn't love Amy a whole lot. One of the things that happened when we got married was I kept saying my wife a lot. I have a wife. I was so pleased. I was stunned that someone just finally decided to marry me. And I just, could, you know, I loved her and my wife, my wife. And I still, when I talk to people and they want to know who I am, she comes into the picture because I love her. And so it should be with us, that people should not know us very long without somehow, some way, us talking about the one who loved us first and that we now love, Christ himself. It should be there somewhere, somehow, some way. So, as the Father sent witnesses to prepare the world for the coming of the Messiah, he now sends other witnesses to inform the world that Messiah has come. But this leads us to a very important thing. I want to remind you, don't confuse the witness with the light. See, there's another very important distinction that John wants us to keep in mind. He points out very clearly that John was not the light. John talked about the light. He bore testimony about the light. But he himself was not the light. Jesus says about John, again in chapter 5, He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. And so John shone forth for a season and a time, and the people of Israel were meant to enjoy that for a season and a time. But then John was supposed to diminish so that Christ might increase But what happened is that not everyone would let him decrease. Some of his disciples, as we're going to see as we go through uh, this gospel, uh, willingly went and followed Jesus, but there were some that clung to John. They were happy with the light that he provided. They thought it was sufficient light that he provided. They enjoyed being close to John and did not want to give up John's prestige and status, which sounds kind of funny when you think about the fact that what he wore and what he ate and where he lived, right? Yes, let's go hang out in the wilderness, eat locusts and honey, and have, you know, uh, camel skin clothes. But they saw him as important and wanted others to see him as important, and they clung to him. But John was a light that they were meant to rejoice in, but to help people see the true light. On our church's Facebook account, I put a Bruce Lee clip and not many of you watched it. That's okay. <laughs> in, the, in the movie, Enter the Dragon, there's this one scene where they let Bruce Lee, early on in the movie, sort of introduce a two-minute spot, so to speak, of his philosophy of fighting and martial arts. And at the end of this little bit here, he tells his disciple, he's trying to get him to sort of feel uh, you know, what he does when he fights. I, I don't still understand it. I don't care. <laughs> but he says, it is like a finger pointing to the moon. At that point, he notices that the disciple is staring at the finger, and he whacks him on the head. He, he does that a little bit. I do not share his pedagogical method. Um, so don't worry, I will not whack you on the head if you get something wrong. He goes, where is that? It is like a It is like a finger pointing to the moon, smacks him on the head. Don't concentrate on the finger 
or you'll miss all that heavenly glory. John is the finger. Don't focus on the finger. Behold the heavenly glory that is not the moon, but it is the eternal Son who has become man. Some of His disciples became fixated on the finger. They still followed Him when others followed Jesus. In Acts, we see that this was so prevalent that some of His disciples had traveled as far as Alexandria and Ephesus because we see that there were people like Apollos and some disciples who had, who had been baptized with the baptism of John, but had not received everything. They knew a little bit about Jesus, but they really kind of focused, it seems, a bit on John. And did not give people the fullness of the message of Jesus Christ. The Pharisees, for instance, they held on to Moses instead of trusting in the Messiah that Moses preached. It's so tempting for us as well to focus on the witness and not the one witnessed about. We live in an age, brothers and sisters, unfortunately, of the celebrity pastor. This has come up recently with the Mark Driscoll issues uh, that have appeared. Um, These celebrity pastors can very easily become more important to us than Jesus himself. They get a lot of press. They write a lot of books. They do a lot of things. And that can be good and that can be something that we struggle with at times. These celebrity pastors, just like ordinary pastors, are intended to point us to Christ who died for sinners. They're not intended to point us to themselves. They should always be saying, look to Jesus. Look, see Jesus. Not, look, see me, as I promote something again. And sometimes our hearts can get too comfortable with the celebrity pastors or even ordinary pastors. You don't have to have lots of books for someone to look at you instead of looking at the light. One sign, perhaps, that a pastor has supplanted Jesus is if they can never be wrong meaning you think they're always right. That's one of the the things I always talk about as I interact with people. Some people think that because I'm a Calvinist, therefore I must think that Calvin saves me. No, it just means I think he articulated what the Bible says better than most people do. But you know what? There are times when I read Calvin and I go, what? Where did he get that? And now either he's blind or I'm blind. I mean, you guess. You, you choose on those kind of things. But there are times when I, I disagree with Calvin strongly. There are places in which I disagree with R.C. Sproul strongly. Apologetics being one of them. Okay. If you can't disagree with these teachers within the church then something is profoundly wrong. Now, I have not found anything I disagree with from Sinclair Ferguson yet. I'm sure that day will arise, and I will let you know when it comes, because Sinclair Ferguson is just a man. He merely points me to Christ. He is not Christ. You should disagree with me periodically. 
I don't encourage it very often. <laughs> but my theology is not perfect. It is not in complete harmony with the scriptures yet. It won't be until the day I die and see Jesus face to face. There are places where I am wrong. The problem is I don't know where they are or I fix them. And so God has mercy upon my soul. Okay? And yours as well as a result. And so we must be very careful. Don't settle for a lamp like John when you have the bright, beautiful light itself. Don't settle for a lamp if you have the sun. S-U-N. You don't need a lamp if you're in the sunlight. So don't settle for the witnesses. Settle for the one about whom they testify. So we can trust the testimony of faithful witnesses. We just can't put our trust in the witnesses, if you understand that distinction. Thirdly, witnesses persuade people to trust in the light. Witness is one of the whole points of this gospel. Just as that idea of sentness is is prevalent throughout John's gospel, this idea of witness is prevalent. The noun, which means either a witness or testimony itself, that shows up 15 times in John's gospel. The verb, to bear witness, shows up 29 times in this gospel. This gospel itself provides witness to Christ the true light. This gospel additionally equips people like you and me to be witnesses, to testify to the truth of Jesus. It provides us with content for us to to proclaim to others. There are two purpose clauses that are stuck in these couple of verses we have here. And the first was that he came, meaning John, in order to bear witness to the light. We've already seen that. The second one is that he bore witness in order that all might believe through him. He was sent that many would believe. And now we begin to enter another one of those tensions that will keep popping up throughout John's Gospel in that one little word, all. What are we to make of this word? Are we to make of it that John came in order that every single person might believe through him? Well, I mean, John's ministry was rather limited. John, uh, the author of the gospel, the apostle here, I believe is sort of setting up this tension for us, not in the sense of all as in every person, but all as in all kinds of people, because he's going to declare something that was quite controversial in Israel at that point in time, and that controversial thing was that the gospel was for Gentiles too. That Jesus was going to come not just for Jewish sinners, but he was going to come for Gentile sinners. Most of the Jews at this point didn't care about Gentile sinners. They'd already filled up the, the, the court of the Gentiles at the temple with merchants. In other words, they didn't expect or want Gentiles to show up. There was a deep prejudice within their hearts against the Gentiles. Understandable when you think of the way in which they had been treated by the Gentiles even at that point in history. 
But nonetheless, John is going to declare something amazing that was found in the Old Testament, but they had chosen to ignore, is that he was also going to be a light to the Gentiles, as it says in Isaiah. It's too small a thing, the father said, for you to come to Israel. I will also make you a light to the nations or the Gentiles. In Isaiah 42, verse 8. The apostles and other Christians are sent for this very same purpose in order that others might believe. That word believe or faith has that idea of being convinced of something. Okay, it's not blind faith. You know, I believe I'm going to win the lottery next week. I don't play the lottery at all, but... Either way, it's something that's, that you're convinced of, you're persuaded that something is true, and you're persuaded on the basis of testimony, not just desire. And it's not just being that idea of being um, persuaded about something being true, but also that idea of having confidence in it and therefore entrusting yourself to it. That's why in Evangelism Explosion, one of the illustrations they use is the chair. It's one thing to believe that the chair can support you. It's another thing to be so convinced the chair can support you that you actually sit on it. And so what, you are, what, what we're trying to do is not, not just have people who have gospel content in their heads, but are trusting that content for their future. That They're really believing Jesus' death is sufficient to save them from the wrath of God. So the good things that they do are are done out of a response of love and thanksgiving as opposed to trying to earn their way with God. And so faith isn't just being persuaded of something, but acting, in a sense, upon that which you are persuaded about. Entrusting yourself into the hands of Jesus. Jesus warned again in John 5. seems like all roads lead to John 5 this morning. He says of the Pharisees and the religious leaders, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about Me. Yet you refuse to come to Me that you may have life. And so Jesus is telling them, I don't understand, well, so to speak. You search the Scriptures, and you rightly search the Scriptures, because you rightly understand that there there is life that is found there. The problem is, those Scriptures testify about Me, and you should be coming to Me that you might be saved, but you refuse to come to Me, the one to whom the Scriptures point. And so Jesus was exposing their unbelief. They read the Scriptures, but they really didn't believe the Scriptures. Or they would believe in Him. We who believe, who entrust ourselves to Him, do have life. We do experience salvation, which extends beyond, as John Piper noted, the um, forgiveness of sins. And so, John the well, both John the Apostle and John the Baptizer, 
wanted people to place their confidence in the eternal Son who can give life. Both Johns wanted people to place their confidence in the God who loves and who creates as an overflow of that love. I'm currently reading a book called The Mission of God, and it's an excellent book in so many ways, and I've actually got bookmarks in three different sections of the book because I I didn't read it from beginning to end. I started to read it in response to my needs for sermons. Okay, so I've got three different places I'm in this book, and it struck me this week when I was reading for today that when he talks about the you know God wanting to be known maybe it's the part I haven't read yet but it's not about God who is love he's leaving out the why does God want us to know him because God loves his people and because he loves his people he wants them to know him Because it is in knowing Him that they have eternal life. It is in knowing Him and the one that He has sent, His Son, Jesus Christ, that they have all the blessings of God. He, He wants us to know because He loves. When we separate the mission of God from the love of God, we have big problems. We have a God who just demands obedience. Not the God who loves to invite in that he might bless his people. The God who is known more as Lord and Master than Father. We need to keep the mission of God together with the love of God, which is exactly what John does. For God so loved the world that he sent his Son. The love is connected with the sending. And we have to reconnect that in our own thinking and as well as our own practice. That we go because we love God and we go because we love the people we're going to. But we go even greater remembering that He has declared love for sinners such as us. He wants them to believe Faith here, grammatically, is seen more as the initial act, the point of conversion. There, is, there are other places, particularly in John's letters, where he talks about um, ongoing belief. It's very, you know, that's necessary. But that ongoing belief has to start somewhere. And so this persuasion is intended to produce that initial belief, that initial conviction and commitment to the one about whom is testified. So, as I ponder all of this, I think that God's ways, once again, are not our ways. He didn't hype the coming of the Son, but He did send a series of faithful witnesses to testify to the truth about the Son to come. It wasn't like you see in commercials, greatest ever, new and improved, all these lies that sometimes get told, they bore faithful witness to the Son. And after He sent the Son, He kept sending faithful witnesses, not just little blips and blurbs stolen out of a review to make it look better than it really is. Real testimony about the Son so that people can put their confidence in Him and entrust themselves to Him as the giver of life and love 
Now, is this the God that you believe in? Is this the God to whom you bear witness? Is this the God in in whom you have entrusted your very soul? Because that's what John wants. That's what I want. Let's pray. Father, it still astounds me that you would place your love upon us. Sinners that we are, who belong on the island of misfit toys, so to speak, for we have failed you in ways beyond counting, and yet we see that you wanted us as your very own and have sent your Son to find us, to reclaim us, to win us. Father, help us to really drink this in, in the days to come. That in those moments when our mind could be going to the BCS or some other thing, that you would break through that. That we might meditate upon these things so that we would be humbled by them. That we would be encouraged by them. That we would draw confidence in them. Help us to know in greater measure the love you have poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.